Hello and welcome back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. My name is Brucker and today I will be continuing on my fun interview series called What's Your Favorite Horror Trope? Today I will be joined by two really awesome folks. I was joined by writer and director Nora Uncle. You may recognize her. She was on here previously to discuss her movie that is available on Shutter called A Nightmare Wakes, which is a kind of blending story between Frankenstein's story and Mary Shelley's story. So it's kind of like a faux horror biopic, but it's not really a biopic, but it kind of is. I recommend everybody checking it out. It's available on Shutter. I was also joined by Lauren of X99 Fear Street, which is a fun Instagram account in which Lauren will read R.L. Stein and other Fear Street novels on there live and people can comment and participate and she kind of you know does this every tuesday night so you'd be sure to check out x99 fear street on instagram if you want to have a fun little reading hour every tuesday so today the tropes that both nora and lauren want to get into were gender fueled this is very much a gender and horror type of episode we first start off with Nora, in which we kind of get into, you know, how women are portrayed in horror. How there are some progressive attitudes, but there also aren't so many progressive attitudes early on in the genre. We get into how they were shot, how there is this kind of fear of female sexuality, how death scenes are also different between men and women. We do get into some rape revenge movies. Uh, not explicitly, but I just want to give a quick trigger warning. We do at least discuss the genre briefly of rape revenge. Again, not explicitly. And there are some spoilers for Scream 4 and The Witch in this. Those are two, I don't know, they've been out within the last 10 years. So if you don't, if you haven't seen those movies, you don't want to be spoiled. Um, I just kind of, once we start mentioning Scream 4, just kind of skip around that. Now, I know that you're thinking, oh, women in horror, we talk about Final Girls. We touch on Final Girls, but we don't do a deep dive. That will be next episode. I have uh, some very fun discussions with Final Girls with a couple of people coming up in this interview process, so don't you worry. After our chat with Nora, we will catch up with Lauren at X99 Fear Street to talk about non-believing partners and especially the haunting of Hill House. Up first is writer and director Nora Uncle, who is such a joy to talk to. Hope that you guys enjoy it, and be sure to check her out on Shudder, A Nightmare Wakes. Enjoy the interview. I'm so happy to be joined by Nora Uncle, writer and director. Hello, Nora. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming back on. So what uh, what kind of horror tropes uh, do you find interesting or what would you like to talk about? Mm, well, unsurprisingly, I think some of the tropes that always jump to my mind first are a lot of the ones that are talking about gender and talking mm -hmm. about women specifically in horror. Um, and I will say a little caveat before I dive into ripping some things apart because <laughs> I do it with love. <laughs> Um, you know, my, the reason why I kind of approach horror is because I think that horror is one of the earliest genres that has actually centered women um, at, you know, at the forefront from the very beginning. And what's really interesting about that is that, yes, it's created a lot of these tropes that are somewhat, you know, messy and, right. you know, the, the final girl trope and, and the woman in white trope and the mm -hmm. blonde screamer trope um, that ha have problems. But the very fact that they exist is like three times 
a further of a progress than almost every other genre in film. And so what I love about horror is that we can see these tropes and we can kind of rip them apart and, mm-hmm. and talk about them. But um, what this new age of horror is allowing filmmakers to do, such as myself, is to take these tropes and subvert them. Um, but by starting from a, a slate of already including quote unquote different voices and female voices and, you know, telling stories through the lens of different characters, it, it's already so progressive in such a cool way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess one of the things that kind of came to mind when you first asked me about this <laughs> <laughs> was kind of the the way that female sexuality is used in so many different tropes as character motivation throughout mm. horror, right? Because you kind of have almost like three different archetypes. You have the pure, virginal, often dark-haired, eventual final girl, mm. right? The the one who who has done nothing deserving of murder, such as sex. Um, right. And then you have the blonde, dumb, oversexed, overboobed, um, over-boobed. often. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one on me. Thanks. Yeah, that just came up with that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who often die pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the um, crazy woman trope. The woman who, for whatever reason, cannot be believed, cannot be thought um, truthful simply because of her, quote unquote, hysterics. Right. And what I like about all of these is is there's an interesting direct correlation, again, to their relation to sex with the men in the, in the cast. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why, again, modern day, we're kind of taking that and subverting that into saying well you know maybe if she had sex that doesn't just justify her death you know um and then you have the genres of course the subgenres of say the rape revenge thriller right which the entire personality of the main character is deemed and determined by the sexual violence that is committed against her Mm -hmm. rather than actual personality um so yeah, I, fi- I find these tropes to really be interesting and kind of interestingly weaved together. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have, I think Hitchcock probably started the blonde mood, right? My mom calls them the Hitchcock blondes. Oh. And, and it's often, you know, very beautiful, stunning women who are not necessarily very nuanced or thoughtful, but they're very provocative in some manner. Mm-hmm. And I think that once we kind of got into the 70s, 80s, 90s version of horror, you start to see those blonde women as the ones that start getting killed first. Um, but yeah, I think it kind of Hitchcock almost started that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then you see it on the complete opposite side where you have the fear of women's sexuality, right? That the um, the women as dangerous objects, the, the extreme version would be any form of like vagina dentata. Right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's like any any woman who has kind of taken strength from her sexuality is seen as this malicious, evil, supernatural being. But yes, and I think all of this ties into the overall trope. This is a very long winded way of saying this, but the overall trope, which is reasons and excuses for us to not believe women. 
mm. in these movies, right? You you always have the wonderful, grounded, thoughtful, smart, of, um, often father male character, right? The I think of um, Poltergeist, right? The father in the Poltergeist mm-hmm. who who doesn't see any of the crazy things at first, doesn't know these things are happening at first, doesn't believe the mother when she's saying, nah, this shit's happening. Right. Um, and it's not until he actually experiences things that we actually accept that, oh, there's a ghost in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's done, all these different kind of uses of female sexuality and these tropes of, of these female archetypes allow us as a genre to be able to look at these characters and just not believe them in their views of danger right Mm -hmm. um another example would be say you know that that trope of the female scream where you get a a woman who runs in sees the monster sees the murderer and just stops and screams Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) doesn't get out of the way doesn't run away stops and screams until a male character can come come through and save the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a similar trope of, of the woman walking down the hallway into the basement to, you know, and you're like, don't go in there, don't do it. And, and often that's actually coming from a place where she's already said there's something bad in the basement, but nobody believed her. And mm-hmm. so she's having to walk there to prove her point and in turn dies and therefore her body is usually the proof. Um, but it's interesting when you see it that way and you're like, oh, okay. So we're kind of sowing the seeds of, of not believing the female characters unless they are this pure, virginal, final girl type character. Quick question. Do you see that about the whole not believing the, the female character? Do you see that? Is it more of a, I guess it kind of depends on the movie, but is it more of like a commentary? Because the audience is sometimes like, you know, let in on like, no, like she, we saw what she saw and <laughs> other people aren't believing her. So it, do you find it, it's more of a case of it being kind of like a commentary on that? Or it's like, this is being, this, this is being used as a convenience to a plot because that's how it is. You know, I think it it's almost split evenly down the middle, right? Like I, I feel like, Sometimes it can absolutely be this very nuanced subversion, complication, conversation, and sometimes it's just lazy writing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's again why I love horror is because just by setting up that archetype and setting up that trope, it's it leaves it ripe for changing that and 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 complicating that and saying, well, like, well, maybe that's supposed to be a commentary maybe we can comment on that and say that's not what it should be right i think um one of my favorite shows of all time is buffy the vampire slayer mm-hmm. right and that was purposely taking um joss whedon came up with the idea and i mean i have issues again with him but with the way that um buffy was presented is what if we gave the power and the violence to the you know skinny you young blonde girl instead of just killing her first? What mm. if she actually was the one fighting back? And and in that, people not believing her and um, her having to fight for her voice throughout the entire series is this uh, is a commentary on that trope, is a commentary on the idea of, of, can this teenage girl be a superhero? Can she defeat the evil? 
um, when we normally see these burly men doing that final defeat or the raven-haired woman barely escaping death in the end whereas Buffy just comes in and kicks ass right yeah yeah <laughs> and it's, it's a cool kind of uh you know f- flip on what we kind of normally think as like you know the protagonist and those kind of action horror type mm-hmm. of roles yeah absolutely well oh and in that a fun trope that I I love to see and granted also write um mm. is the trope of the um developing of doomed characters developing of doomed characters okay so refresh me on this yeah no well i i don't know if that's actual terminology but i'm making that up um but (laughs) as podcasters do uh, yeah that's okay (laughs) right as you do yeah it's essentially the idea of um you know there's often that like one let's say asshole male character in it that you just really don't like and then you know, a scene before his death, you get this really thoughtful, nuanced look at his character. Some new light is shed that tells you, oh, wow, he's been an asshole because he was hurt. Or he, he, you know, you you find a way to emotionally connect to him. Mm -hmm. And then the writer murders him. As soon as you feel this emotional connection, this development of this character, then they take you, take him away from you, right? Yeah. And I'm reminded of that just because that's a classic Joss Whedon trick. Yeah. It's like hook you and take you, take it away. And it's such a, so impactful for an audience, mm-hmm. but it's also just absolutely cruel. <laughs> yeah. Also, it could also be kind of harmful, I think, too, because it's kind of justifying some, like, I guess it kind of depends on the character specifically, mm. but, you know, because in a weird way, it's like justifying, like, oh, this is why he was, like, you know, sexist throughout the movie, or this is why he's, you know, this way, it's because, you know, he's also a tortured soul. It's like, oh, you, you know, you could be sympathetic for that, but it's also kind of like, right. it doesn't excuse you from some of your actions, though. And so oh, it's, yeah. it's kind of like a, a mean trick on the audience, too. Very manipulative, yeah. which, granted, as a writer, you know, we have to be. Um, so <laughs> it's one that I like seeing. And once I started paying attention to that and watching movies, as soon as you you see that scene where you get this really emotional, deep connection to a character, I'm always like, oh, they're dying in the next scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not the protagonist and it's not the love interest and suddenly you're getting this very like big dump of, of emotional weight for this character, guarantee you. They're probably gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> um, while we're talking about like gender roles and or kind of like just gender discussion, uh, I kind of want to throw another trope at you about yeah. that's kind of related to this and uh, get your idea on this. Uh, at least just from like the slashers and other like movies I've watched, uh, horror movies, it seems that most of like the female characters that do die in a horror movie, they their deaths kind of seem to be a little bit more. I don't know, like drawn out, like a little mm. bit more. I don't want to say torturesome because that's not always the case, but definitely not as quick and easy as it is for some of like their male counterparts throughout the movie. Yeah. And I mean, granted, there's probably like on average more male, uh, more male characters dying, but mm. they're pretty quick. Uh, kind of, uh, I think like the the one I think of. Uh, just this is like the fourth time I've mentioned this during all these interviews, but uh, I guess this is what I get for stacking them on top of each other's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was about to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, the we I can't remember anyone's names in that besides Sally, but one of the guys he just gets hit 
with the hammer real quickly, but then we see some of the other girls and like being hanged on hooks and, you know, shoved into stuff. So I don't know. I just, I just kind of always find that kind of really interesting. And like Cabin in the Woods brings that up about how yeah. final girl is meant to suffer. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I love that you bring that up because yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to be said. Um, what my producing partner and I often call that is torture porn. Mm. Um, Tarantino is a big one for this. Um, you know, there's all over classic B horror and a horror, but um, I think a formative example of that is the entire subgenre of rape revenge, mm. right? Which positions itself in this manner that it's um, supposed to be, you know, centering the woman and allowing her to get this catharsis, this revenge from something super heinous. But usually, when you see those movies, and I've only ever seen. I'll, I'll be bold here and say I've only ever seen one not sexist rape revenge film um, because most of them will spend so much time on the actual rape, on the violence against her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Spin on Your Grave, for instance, she then spends the entire rest of the movie naked running around a forest. I don't know how exactly empowering that is and her revenge, therefore, how empowering that is and more how that's just allowing her to be a device for the plot mm-hmm. and allowing rape itself to be just a plot device. And I, yeah, I think some of it happens to do with, um, yeah, I'll say it, patriarchal values of, of enjoying the um, control and power over women. Hmm. Um, and that's my big macro statement, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think on, on a micro level, it, it also, we see women as a culture, we see women as more vulnerable as, as when something bad happens to something, you know, more innocent, more pure, more, um, and again, why you get the blondes, right? You get the virgins that happening to them is in some people's minds and a lot of these male filmmakers minds, the worst kind of violence. Right. And so they're, I think, I don't think they're always trying to be, sexist in how they present it it's just the very lens in which they're approaching it is is focusing on that violence and showing that because that is the most heinous that this monster this creature this mike myers could do Mm. is to violate so brutally something so pure and beautiful that is usually supposed to be only a sec an object for sexual desire or a mother Mm. um and whereas the male characters it's it's not about seeing the pieces of their bodies as they get cut up. It's about knowing, oh, you're out of the way. You can't protect any of the women anymore. Let's go see how they're doing, how they're faring. And I love that you bring up Cabin in the Woods because I think that is one of my all-time favorite movies. And I think it's just brilliant. And the way that it looks at all of these um, tropes, turns them on their head and, and really shines a mirror to them, but also in a very fun way. But yeah, I think Rape Revenge it really teeters a tight, tight line between torture porn and actual progressive thinking. Because, you know, I I talk to a lot of survivors as well who, who are like, I'm sorry, I don't believe in catharsis. I don't believe in revenge. And Mm. the idea of, of, you know, hurting somebody further after this kind of pain was inflicted on me, that doesn't give me hope or happiness. That doesn't, close the book on that um and that idea in general is a male fantasy 
thinking that women can just close that chapter and be like, great, the rape has been revenged, we're moving on and all is good. Um, so I think that entire genre, yeah, is this kind of focus of how can we brutalize women in a way that's quote unquote entertaining, but also pretend that they have some sort of autonomy on their own. All, all, all very good, interesting uh, <laughs> insights. Uh, before we before we wrap this up, uh, just because we kind of touched on Final Girls throughout this, uh, who are some of your favorites? Ooh, I mean, you put Jamie Lee Curtis on film, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> like, point blank, no question. Um, and also, she's not my favorite. My favorite Final Girl simply because it's a. I don't even remember her name, frankly, but the way that it was done in Psycho, the fact that you expect Janet Lee to be the mm -hmm. final girl and to have her leave halfway through the film and suddenly her sister takes over and is the final woman to survive, I think is brilliant. And again, a subversion of a genre that had yet to even be fully established. Right, by, yeah. You know. Um, and there's even some interesting gender stuff going on there too with Norman. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and not to mention, you know, talk about torture porn. That was a, a director who very much enjoyed the um, destruction of the female psyche, both yeah. on and off camera. Um, granted, it made for a stunning film, but we can still call out the problems. Right. That while loving it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, oh, who was I going to say? I just want to spit out some chalk ones. So like Sydney, yeah. Sydney Prescott, Nancy Thompson. I mean, I love Sydney Prescott. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, yep. great. That's that's a great example. Yeah. Um, just every Scream movie ever, you yeah. know? Like... Yeah, they're, oh, yeah, they're great. Yeah. Well, that one is also an example of them kind of like subverting and almost redefining what a final mm -hmm. girl can be or who Absolutely. a final girl can be. Because, I mean, she does have sex and yeah. she still wins the day. And yeah. she kind of, we get a little bit of PTSD of her in the sequels, but she's still very strong too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I'll even say, I'll throw in, uh, what, what's her, I think her, Emma Roberts in Scream 4. Yeah. Um, because again, that's a version where you expect this very classical, you know, good, goody two shoes girl to be the final girl and actually turns out she's very much not <laughs> which by the way i feel like that's a performance that just gets overlooked all the Every time because yes. her going full psycho on a dime is incredible <laughs> especially when she starts to beat so the crap out of herself it's so great oh okay this is the recent one i was thinking of not slasher at all and very much in a different subgenre altogether but anya taylor joy and the witch is such a great final girl mm -hmm. like that entire conversation again is this subversion of the idea of the final girl the fact that you land at the end of the witch not knowing for sure was this an origin story for this evil character or was this girl put into this position and either forced into becoming this person or was she just blamed for it to begin with it mm. makes you as an audience have to even question your own expectations for this character and your own your own prejudices on if you believe that who she was throughout this whole thing and her being the final survivor but also the final murderer puts into question and puts all of these archetypes that i've been talking about the evil 
sexual girl, the virginal um, girl, and the um, mother kind of figure, the caretaker. And it mixes them all together and says, maybe she's a witch. Interesting. So I, okay, so you are the the person who I talked to. I don't know what order I'm going to put all these interviews in. Yeah. But the person I talked to recently, uh, Ellie over at Bad Credit, she also brought up um, the witch as being one of her favorite final girls. And I, so I'm going to ask you the same question I asked her. And yeah. so I, my, this is my personal opinion. I don't really see that character specifically as a final girl, just more as a, like a, a female, a leading female role protagonist in a horror movie, but it's not necessarily a final girl. So I'm going to ask you the same question. What sort of characteristics or qualifiers does she have that make you go that's a final girl not just a leading role in a horror movie that's a good question and i think for me this in point is actually the thing that i'm i was talking about in terms of this modernization of these horror tropes right that yes if we were to look at the classical sense of the 80s horror movie where you have a group of people um, that each get taken down one by one until there's one final girl standing um, who often barely survives only based off of luck or the, you know, the other people getting killed first um, and not necessarily always by her own merits. Um, that I think these modern stories, especially a lot of these kind of psychological um, horror stories, are allowing for the widening of that, the widening of the idea of, of the term, exactly. And so for me, I think it's the fact that, again, you do have a group of people. They just happen to be her family. Um, we are, what I would say is different about this than, say, a lot of these other slasher versions where those don't necessarily focus and center on the final girl until she's becoming more and more obviously the last one standing. Mm-hmm. Whereas this really starts as like, this is Anya Taylor-Joy's story. This is from her perspective. This is a movie that is about this character. So I understand why those are kind of yeah. different. Um, but for me, yeah, it's still, they. it's a group of people that have entered a horrific situation and are being taken down one by one. And the last one standing, who also could potentially be the reason for all of it, or could be just the blamed reason for all of it, is is a girl who, who again, the reason why she'd been blamed the entire time was because she was a girl. Um, so for me, it's the fact that she survives while everybody else has to die um, in order for her to realize her own arc, which is the accepting of I'm never going to fit in society. I'm never going to be what they want me to be. So I'm going to be me, which is, I think, what a lot of the final girl actual um, character arcs are, right? You know, we talked to Sydney Prescott. That was somebody who was really trying to fit in with society, was trying to do the right thing, was was um, grieving and trying to look normal. And who, in the end, realizes, like, no, the very fact that I have survived, the very fact that I am persevering is my strength, is is what makes me fit in with this world. And and it's this almost self-realization, this self-actualization that when a good final girl is done, <laughs> that allows. And so that's why, yeah, I'd say it's more psychological, it's more direct because it's from her POV. But I, that's why I'd put her still as a final girl. Awesome. I like that answer. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> uh, well, Nora, it was such a pleasure to talk to you about this. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, talk about horror tropes with me. Oh, thank you. This was a joy. <laughs> thank you so much. I want to say thank you again for Nora Uncle for coming on and this subject matter of studying gender and horror I find so fascinating and I don't know why I think it's just really cool to kind of do a deep dive into this because it is kind of striking seeing the differences between how men and women are portrayed in horror movies and the reasonings behind that one of my favorite examples is the cabin in the woods especially that two-way mirror scene because we get to see how Holden when he gets in the room and he starts to see uh, Donna start to undress some we kind of see how this is really weird and kind of creepy and he's kind of playing we see his emotions and feedback on this he goes no no this is wrong and when they flip it and he goes in the room we get to kind of start to watch him undress it's even a little bit weirder just because we don't always see men framed that way and you know it kind of like this strip tease sort of segment of the movie we don't always get that so that's like one of my favorite examples of that and also if you've seen slumber party massacre that movie is just, of course, filled with nudity and all sorts of stuff. But that's a movie produced and shot and directed by women. And there is that infamous, gratuitous locker room shower scene. And it really lingers on the the fe- the, the nude female bodies in there. And it kind of really felt like a meta middle finger to Roger Corman, who is the producer on there that requires all that nudity and blood and guts and everything. And so I felt like it was really the director, Amy Holden Jones, kind of doing, oh, well, you're going to make me do it. Well, I'm going to really do it. I'm going to make it seem awkward and we're going to linger on people. So that way you can really get a sense of how kind of creepy this is. At least that's how I've always kind of gotten that. But anyways, moving on from uh, exploitation and uh, gender and horror movies, we're going to be moving on to a discussion with Lauren of X99 Fear Street, in which we will be specifically talking about the non-believing partner trope in horror movies. Enjoy. I am so happy to be joined by Lauren of the Instagram Reading Hour show, X99 Fear Street. Hello, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. So please tell me about some horror tropes that you find really interesting. Um, I would say my all-time favorite, which I kind of feel like I have a love-hate relationship with, is the partner being disbelieving of the person who's pretty much being haunted, typically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... I love it because when it's done well, it's, I don't know, they're a good partner, but when it's done bad, it's so frustrating to watch. Um, And I think often it's that type of thing. But I feel like a good example of this that isn't like in your face is The Conjuring um, with the husband. Um, Because even though he doesn't even really have that big of a part in the movie, um, Ron, he just goes along with it like he's ready to hire the warrens with his wife and just um get the house checked out (laughs) yeah and i think that's a good example too because he isn't exactly like overtly like uh disregarding stuff it's just he he isn't as into it i guess like he doesn't seem as fearful as his wife in it and he's kind of just going through the motions 
Exactly. And I think typically we're so used to seeing the partner just immediately like having some level of disbelief, even if they come around like in Insidious, another James Wan one, (laughs) um, Josh, I feel like he, even though he does believe in the beginning, sort of, for the most part, he's pretty like, well, we'll just do whatever, like whatever to make you feel better, even though he's not necessarily believing her. He's just wanting to make her comfortable. So, um, yeah, (laughs) I feel like that's more of what we see. And also, I feel like when the partners don't believe, they end up becoming like the forefront character and like their story really shines through more than the person who's being haunted, which is kind of disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Unless in The Conjuring, where, like, it's really about the wife and the mom. Mm -hmm. Um, An example, too, of someone who's, like, absolutely terrible, I think we all hate him, is Micah from Paranormal Activity. Mm, Yeah. Because he definitely does not really believe Katie. Um, (laughs) And he just like he makes it a joke and he tries to like antagonize whatever's there even though he doesn't believe in it to get I feel like to get a rise out of her and that's like when I just uh want to strangle them through the screen <laughs> because they're so frustrating right do you think that this trope is kind of more specific to some like the the supernatural paranormal uh, types of movies I do um I think it could kind of apply to some slashers, but that pretty much like ends quickly because that person usually will die. I feel like if they don't believe, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think like like an example that's kind of semi-present, and maybe maybe this is too soft of an example that might cut out, but <laughs> is Glenn from A Nightmare on Elm Street because uh, Johnny Depp's character because oh. he like yeah. kind of believes Nancy. Well, he sort of believes Nancy a little enough to just like go along with whatever she wants, yes. but he's definitely not taking it seriously at all. Yeah, he doesn't have that level of urgency that she does. Like when he falls asleep and is supposed to call her back, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he says kind of like a love hate relationship. Yeah, mostly because when it is done right, it's like nice to see a supportive partner. And I think that is rare in horror movies (laughs) to see like a like united unit between two partners i feel um but when it's done bad and i feel like more often than not it's done bad (laughs) (laughs) or like frustratingly because you just want the person to believe even if the movie is fantastic um so yeah that's kind of why i have a love-hate relationship with it and i firmly believe i've put this into my own life you should never marry someone who will not believe you if a ghost is haunting you. <laughs> and I think that's like a question you have to ask early on. Oh, that's a great one. That's a, that, that's a yeah. great little <laughs> little questionnaire to, to throw at them on the first date or yes. something. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Are there any sort of examples like this from any like the books that you've done on your show? I would say... Yes, probably every single book. Every single book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, One that comes to mind is Haunted, and it's not necessarily like a disbelieving partner, but it's the girl's parents. Um, She's convinced that she is being haunted, and she tells her parents, and they just keep telling her, like, you need to sleep more. It's fine. Nothing is happening. Oh, and then her boyfriend doesn't believe, so I guess that's part of it. (laughs) I forgot about him. Um, He was really a 
not memorable character whatsoever, but he didn't believe her. Everyone thought she just needed to sleep more, which is weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I think uh, an example of this that I've seen that's kind of, actually, no, it is pretty recent. I mean, it's a couple years old, but that I've really liked is the Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House. Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, because not too many people believe in uh, Nell, especially with the Bentneck lady, and uh, yeah. even like Steve, the, the, the oldest, uh, he just doesn't believe in any of it at all. So yes. yeah, there's there's so much of that going on in that series. And what's interesting, at least to me, is that all the examples that we brought up have been people not believing in women in, in these stories. But yeah. in Hill House, the one time that we get to kind of see like a, a male character is when he's a little boy. It was... Um, uh, oh, the, the drug addict. I forget his name, but when he was a little kid in it. Oh, my God. I can't think of his name either. It's not Paul. But I know it's who... not like, I feel like it's a short name, like Luke. <laughs> yes, I knew it was a one syllable name. Yes, yes, th- yes. And it was like a small name. But uh, yeah, so Luke, yeah. Uh, people, went, you know, with him as a kid, you know, they don't, he sees lots of very scary things too and people kind of yes. just of course at least the dad kind of disregards it even though the mother of them because she's uh, is like a medium kind of she believes in their kids because she kind of is able to sense these things too but the dad also Hugh kind of right. kind of just doesn't exactly buy into all of it at least that's kind of the impression I get from the yeah. when they were in the house as a family yeah I do too and I feel like He's kind of, he doesn't really believe the kids, but it's interesting because he, like, the relationship with his wife, he understands that, like, she is different, Mm -hmm. but it's never, like, he never translates it to his children in the house. He kind of just is like, she's special, she's different, and then just doesn't believe any of the children. Right, (laughs) yeah. And then it's, like, it's also interesting because it's, uh, the like the second half of this of the series when they are all adults it's more of him believing the house and not so much i guess like anything his wife had to say because it's because he's pretty much saying like yeah. the, the house has an agenda <laughs> and he's like really yes. conveying that <laughs> but not he's, he's not speaking too much on um i guess anything his wife maybe have like warned him with it is a weird dynamic especially when they get older mm-hmm. and yeah that's a good point where it is more about the house than his wife, even though he still like sees her and everything, mm-hmm. but it is still like not necessarily that he believes anyone. He just believes the house. Right. Yeah. And I still love the yeah. character of Hugh. I liked him a lot, Me but this too. is, I'm just now kind of connecting the dots right now with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I do, I think you're right. I think women are typically the ones not believed, but also the ones who are more believing, like, if you think of, I can't think of a specific example, but I feel like, well, even Haunting of Hill House, like, she believed the kids and, like, she, I don't know, she was more believing versus Hugh. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for uh, spending time with me to talk about this, uh, I guess, fun, not not always fun horror trope <laughs> of partners not believing in each other. Thank you. It's a passion. <laughs> and <laughs> thank you so much, everybody. Be sure to follow Lauren on her Instagram account, x99fearstreet, where every Tuesday night you do a, a reading yeah. hour. Yes, Tuesday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, yeah thank you.
Well, it finally happened. You woke up, and it hit you. The holidays are over. The lights are coming down, the radio is going back to playing the latest in a long line of hit singles that all sound like the same song about going to the club to get crunk, and the long, gray, dull, wet, cold, depressing months of January and February stretch out before you. Wouldn't it be nice if the holidays didn't come once a year, but every week? On Jacob Marley is Dead, we believe that the holidays shouldn't just be here and gone, but that they should remain in our hearts all the year. That is why each week we watch, review, discuss, and compare one of the many, many, many TV and film adaptations of Charles Dickens' classic novella, A Christmas Carol. Join us as we spiral a Groundhog Day-esque existential nightmare by reviewing the same story every week in perpetuity, and decide which adaptations we see in our Christmas future, and which ones should definitely remain in our Christmas past. Subscribe to Jacob Marley is Dead on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. I want to say thank you again to Lauren of x 99 Fear Street on Instagram for joining me. It's a very interesting trope of non-believing partners. While it is a clever and useful plot device to kind of, you know, sometimes make you think, is our protagonist actually a reliable historian? Can we actually believe what they're seeing? I think a good example of this is The Uninvited. That's a very good kind of tension-building movie where you can't tell if your protagonist if our the person that we are following is a reliable storyteller or a reliable historian some other ones that are really good where it's not the partner that's not being believed but it's kind of like kids i feel like kids are also a big part in this trope where like the parents aren't believing what the kids are seeing kind of like in disturbia summer of 84 and a childhood classic and favorite of mine Alvin and the Chipmunks meet the Wolfman when Alvin knows his neighbor is a Wolfman, but of course Dave doesn't believe him, even though Alvin is doing everything he can to try and improve it. And that is going to do it, folks. That was today's episode of Autopsy of a Horror Movie. I want to thank Nora Uncle, writer and director of A Nightmare Awakes. Go watch that movie. It's on Shudder. You can buy it right now on Amazon. And I also want to thank Lauren of X99 Fear Street for coming on. You two brought some really wonderful ideas, and it was a pleasure speaking with y'all. Thank you again. Everybody go check them out. Links will be in the show notes. And thank you, the listener, for listening to this episode. It really does mean the world to me. Please tag me on Instagram and Twitter at BruckerHorror. Your thoughts on this episode. What are your favorite horror tropes? Let me know what you think. I want to give a special thank you to Shelly. She has been an awesome supporter. If you want to be an awesome supporter like Shelly, head over to buymecoffee.com slash BruckerHorror where you get fun perks like movie commentaries, newsletters, and little things like that. You also have influence over the show too on that site. One last plug, I want to thank John and Jimmy over at Jacob Marley's Dead for keeping me freaking sane as I wrote my master's thesis. Them too, that's a little promo you heard for Jacob Marley's Dead. Super calming and zenning podcast, and that's what I was listening to the whole time I was writing. Those guys kept me freaking sane. Thank you so much, guys. And besides Jacob Marley's Dead and myself, check out all the other shows on That's Not Canon Podcasting Network. Link will be in the show notes. You guys, be sure to watch some good movies, and I'll see you next week when I get to discuss Final Girls, the big one. See you guys.